Starfleet Escape Podcast. Prepare for launch in 3, 2, 1. Enjoy the ride. Welcome to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four-Eyed Radio Network, where we escape into the Star Trek universe. This is episode 92 and is being recorded on February 23rd, 2019. Today's topic, Spectral Scan, Discovery, Season 2, Episode 6. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. This podcast contains spoilers for Discovery Season 2, Episode 6, The Sound of Thunder. You have been warned. I'm Eric Berry. I'm Aaron Gallo. And I'm Eric Dewey. This episode is sponsored by Revenge Lover Designs and Illustrations. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention this podcast for 10% off of your order. How's everyone doing this week? Uh, I'm okay-ish. Still got still got lots of issues going on at work and such, so once again, this, this is pretty much the highlight of my week right now, so... <laughs> I love it because this is my escape into the Star Trek universe. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Star Trek, new Star Trek continues to be one of the big highlights of of my week in a week full of travel and work drama. So I love Star Trek, guys. (laughs) That's why we're here. Me too. Wouldn't you? Go figure. (laughs) What a coinky dink. How are you, Aaron? I feel like ish as well. Um... (laughs) You're getting over a nasty cold there, weren't you? Uh, yep. Still, uh, still battling it out. I don't have any, uh, Dr. McCoys or Crushers or Phloxes or... Or Pollards. <laughs> or Pollards. Or, or Colberts. Indeed. Um, you need a new regenerated spore body. <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah. That's... <laughs> I need to rebuild it from my DNA and get rid of all my scars. <laughs> That'd be cool. That would be cool. You know, it's also cool. The new Twilight Zone trailer. <laughs> Very creepy. <laughs> yeah. Like, so that's, that's part of our news. We saw some Star Trek people in there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, we have John Cho and James uh, Fran. Series premieres in April. CBS All Access. That'll be... Uh, the only other all-access show that I'm currently excited about. I enjoyed the $1 show that was on there. Um, I haven't checked out any of the other streaming originals besides Trek and that. Um, but I will be checking out the, the Twilight Zone, of course, because I love the original. I love The Outer Limits. I love Black Mirror. I love those kind of twisted takes on reality. A similar anthology show, like Stories You Tell in the Dark, mm-hmm. that's also on uh, CBS All Access. I haven't watched it yet, but Teresa and I are interested in it because there's a Ranger actor from one of the newer seasons that's acting in it. Is it? Um, okay. But but it's kind of like a scary. Yeah, is that the, like the twisted fairy tales kind of a thing? Is that the one that's based on that series of books? Um, scary stories to tell in the dark. I, I yeah, had heard that they were coming out with a series. It. I never really enjoyed those growing up, except for the ones that were funny. Like they always had like one or two per book that had mm. a funny ending instead of a scary ending. And those were the ones that I always found amusing. There was one called Bloody Fingers where like this guy's like trying to do something and there's this like spirit like constantly haunting him, like bloody fingers. You keep saying over and over again. And the guy finally is like, well, you just shut up and get a Band-Aid. And so like that's the end of the story. And I'm just like, that's fantastic. Um, 
<laughs> That's awesome. So I liked those ones, but the ones that were like supposed to be scary, like the ones that would, you know, the yeah. creepypasta type ones, as they call it now, those never really interested me. So I don't know if I'll check out that show or not. I might give it an episode or two just to just to see what it's about. But yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not much on horror and scary stuff because it doesn't usually actually scare me. And so unless it's really psychological and makes me think, I, it usually ends up just boring me. I usually end up just kind of doing something else. Like it'll be going and I'll be like on Twitter, Instagram or something. And I'm like, oh, oh, that thing jumped out of the thing. I was supposed to be scared. Ah, uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Twilight Zone. Um, exciting. Uh, in uh, first, I'm going to check it out. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's April 1st. I yeah, believe. it's Uh-oh. April Fool's Day. So it's not is. actually happening. This is all a joke. Ugh. Twilight <laughs> Zone, you almost had us. <laughs> and they're going to be dropping two episodes that night. Oh, so nice. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what time it's going to be dropping. Check it out. So trekmovie.com uh, found some new episode titles for star trek discovery Uh, so we have episode seven light and shadows which is february 28th and supposedly this is the episode that we finally find spock yeah we saw Mm. in the the trailer it's like oh my gosh finally it says next episode or next time on and there's spock now i I guarantee you i feel like we've seen spock every next time no i don't think we have <laughs> except for the the very first one where they said this season on yeah, star trek yeah, yeah. discovery we saw spock but then every time it's been next time on star trek discovery and then no spock and we're like seriously guys still but this time we saw him guaranteed that's the ending scene of the episode oh god <laughs> no no spock until the very end that's i i bet you anything i'm calling it right now that's on my predictions list but we'll, we'll i'll skip ahead to the predictions the ending scene of next week's episode is them is that scene of them finding spock in that cave or wherever they are from the trailer well i find i thought when they showed rebecca romaine i thought that was going to be at the end of the episode and it was right in the beginning so who knows at this point it's true um, true <laughs> teresa's like really jones in to see spock and She's like, oh, God, finally. <laughs> the search for Spock. Uh, it's, it's a new meaning. Um, episode eight, if memory serves on March 7th. So you might be right, Eric. It might just be like they find him and they're like, hey, what the hell happened to you? Well, this is a big flashback. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, if memory serves. The title I'm most interested in, episode nine is Project Daedalus on March 14th. And they actually pointed out something in that article that I never noticed. I guess the inventor of the transporter that we saw in Enterprise, his name like floats in the opening credits when they show the transporter, like invented by Emery Erickson or whatever his name was. Okay. So I was like, oh, snap, a Star Trek Enterprise reference. So some people were saying, oh, well, what if it's you know, about that or something. And I was thinking, what if it's about the old Daedalus class ship? That'd be cool. Cause I don't think we've seen it in Canon. Right. It's always been like a model, right? It was in Cisco's ready room, mm-hmm. but it is an older ship. It was like, it was old by the time of discovery. Like it right. had already retired as a ship class. Right. So 
I'm really interested in this title because Project Anything sounds cool. Like, <laughs> especially in Star Trek, it means something's happening. Mm-hmm. I bet you that one's probably going to be a Section 31 heavy episode because that sounds like something that yeah. it would be like a, you know, a mission that Section 31 is on or something like that. Whatever it is, it sounds damn cool. Yep. And then Episode 10 is the Red Angel. They've, on they've given up on titling at this point and they just said, you know what, Red Angel, whatever. <laughs> which is which is crazy because, I mean, this isn't this season like supposed to be 13 episodes? That's what I thought. I thought they said it was the same length as season one, which was 13, was it not? But yeah, if you go into the uh, that link, it'll show a graphic of that invented by Emery Erickson that they found. Okay. The, the Red Angel... And then episode 11, which is the last one, um, and these are all, these aren't finalized, so they may change, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the last one is episode 11, Perpetual Infinity. That's a cool title. It is a cool title. That is cool. Yeah, it is a cool title, although it does kind of lend itself to some of our theories that that we'll talk about when we get to our actual predictions, predictions, I think. Yeah, so... In in the Trek movie article, they say the title could be suggesting the concept that the universe is infinite and ever-renewing. This is an idea that we've heard from Stamets this season in Saints of Imperfection. He references uh, Lavier's law, which states nothing is lost, nothing is created, everything is transformed. So this might be the trippy, everything happens after the Red Angel type of thing. Mm. So I don't know. This is going to be weird. And then they march 28th, and then they hand it off to the Twilight Zone. <laughs> These were leaked because of the Canada um, channel, the broadcast station that oh, they have. Space there. TV or whatever it is. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. So, cool new titles. Cool new titles. That's cool. Hopefully the... <laughs> Hopefully the episodes live up to their names. Yeah, the titles we've found can uh, sometimes be very <laughs> on point to to what's going on in the episode. New Eden is a great example. It literally was about a place called New Eden, and that was essentially a new Eden for those people. Whereas this episode, The Sound of Thunder, I'm... did you hear any thunder in the episode? I, I didn't. Uh... <laughs> I think this is referencing the Ray Bradbury story that dealt with the consequences of time travel. And that could be pretty effed up if you think about what the Red Angel is doing. Oh, I I don't know if I've read that one. Is that one of his short stories or is that one of his novels? That's a short story. That's the one with the T-Rex and they travel back in time to... They made a really (laughs) movie uh, based on that short novel but it's a short novel or short story about this time travel agency that actually deals with hunting prehistoric creatures but they kill them like moments before they were supposed to die anyway and so they travel back to kill this t-rex someone freaks out and gets off the predetermined path and steps on a butterfly and everything changes when they get back to the future like there's a different political candidate everything's like kind of misspelled and odd. Uh, and, yeah. So the original yeah. butterfly effect, I think that might be exactly. where the term, the butterfly effect came from then. Cause that would have been written quite a bit before so, I think that term had come into existence. So I'm, that's very likely where the term came from. I'd have to look that up. That's, that's uh, yeah, it's, it's actually a really great uh, short story. Please do not view that crap. Fantastic <laughs> movie. I'm more concerned about because everything of that we know of the red angel so far and the revelation 
at the end of this episode, which we'll talk about, like with tachyons that uh, Admiral Cornwell mentioned, the advanced suit, things that are altering history, like, you know, moving humans from getting blasted in World War Three to a new planet. Everything is kind of like something about time travel or changing destinies. Are we being influenced by some future being? Mm. It looks like a god or something, but it might be more complicated than that. So, right. kind of crazy. Indeed. Why don't we jump in to my favorite segment of the show? Would you buy it? Hell no. <laughs> Not for 250 bucks. <laughs> I don't even know for 25 bucks that I would buy this. For for 25, uh, maybe. 250, heck no. <laughs> um, you can get versions of this for, you know, around $20, I can $20, go to Home Depot and get plywood and just build <laughs> the freaking thing. Well, they, they sell these all over the place here in various styles. And even the ones that are branded, I think the most expensive one I've seen is, is branded like uh, Ohio State or Michigan. And those ones are usually in the neighborhood of $40, $50. Mm. And even that I looked at and said, ah. Uh, uh, no, even if it were like I looked at it and said, hmm, maybe if they made it, if I if I found a Diamondbacks one at like a thirty forty dollar price range, maybe I'd think about it. A Star Trek one is definitely interesting, but two hundred and fifty dollars no. for this? No, that's ridiculous. That's a heck no on me. It's a no for me too. And we're talking about the Star Trek, the original series, NC one seven oh one cornhole set for. $250 for some reason. I never knew that this was called cornhole. <laughs> you know, I've heard other like a bean bag, yeah, be- bean toss or bean yeah. bag toss. I've right. always and... heard it called cornhole until I came out here. And like, and what's funny is we, you know, in Arizona, we called it cornhole all the time, but it was a fairly rare thing for people to have. Like not everybody, you didn't know five people that had a cornhole set. Hey, dude. It was you like one person. You have a cornhole. <laughs> <laughs> but out here, like everybody and their mama has this. this is like a standard tailgate you know picnic whatever type of game and but nobody calls it cornhole out here <laughs> I'm like but that's but that's yeah. what it's called i don't i mean i guess it's called other things but it comes it comes with two boards and eight bean bags and the dimensions of the board are fairly large it's like four feet by five feet by ten inches and it's it's I mean, a standard it's size for like, I, for what I it think is. The shipping would be insane on it. Maybe that's half the cost. I don't know. <laughs> uh, doesn't it's from Star Trek shop? Yeah, so that's Ugh. usually I think they have free shipping if your order's over a certain amount anyway. So it's probably I don't think you'd have to pay extra for shipping on this unless it's excluded from that because it's so big. Right. Uh, either way, I'm not buying it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not getting it either. One of the things that was interesting to me is in the description it's nc1701 and they for some reason omit the second c because i think second c stands for cornhole (laughs) (laughs) oh maybe nice cornhole 1701 (laughs) (laughs) cornhole (laughs) it's it's interesting because in the description it says that the, it features the ship's true classification, USS Enterprise NCC-1701. So is it like, 
I, I just don't understand why they keep omitting that second C. I don't know. Uh, I thought it was a typo. I'm wondering if that's what it was. Like somebody, whoever wrote the description somehow missed that. And like the webmaster, like they didn't have access to change that for some reason. Whereas so everything. another bullet point. <laughs> so, but they had access to change the, the other parts of the description. So they're like, no, don't worry. It actually has two C's. We promise you. We promise. Yeah. I'm like, that's. That's really weird. Cornhole. <laughs> nice cornhole. One seven. It's so bad. <laughs> but yeah. Anyways, it, it's trash. Don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> there are trying, there are kits available for these that are like blank for yeah. really cheap. They come with everything that you need, and like the only thing that would be hard would be the printing or embroidery on the beanbags themselves. But even that, I think you could get custom done for probably cheaper than what they're yeah. asking for this. This is that's a little crazy. I think yeah. the the price point on this is what really makes it a heck no. Like the game itself, it, it's a fun game. No. It's it's one of those things that you know it's it's basically horseshoes but with beanbags and a board with a hole in it instead of horseshoes and a stick in the ground. So it's not it's a fun game to play when you're having an outdoor gathering, barbecue, picnic, something like that, or uh, tailgating that sort of thing. But I have never seen one that costs that much. That's just insane pricing on that. Cornhole. <laughs> You're just really stuck on the name there. <laughs> I just, I, I think it's... You know, cornhole had other meanings before <laughs> Beavis and Butthead no, came along. <laughs> <laughs> I have cornhole. I need TP for my bunghole. It's a no for me, dog. <laughs> Uh, me too, dog. Uh, so let's. Uh... No, that's an American Idol reference, like the. Oh, is it? <laughs> well, like even once... I knew that, and I don't. Early I don't watch on. the show at all. Uh, anyways, go on. Let's read the episode summary here again from CBS All Access. When a new signal appears over Saru's home planet, Burnham, Saru, and the crew embark on a perilous mission that puts Saru in danger and raises questions about the Red Angel's intentions. Hugh struggles to terms with his new reality. That last sentence is probably the only part of this description that actually fits what happened in the episode. Yeah, for real. So let's let's talk about what we liked about the episode. Not a lot. This should be a short section. Uh, um, there, there were some things to like about this episode. I'm not going to completely yeah. pan it. This is not the worst episode. We're, we're making fun. We're making jokes. But this is definitely not the worst episode of Trek that any of yeah, us have that, ever seen. Th this is no threshold. I'm doing a rewatch of Next Generation. And I just, I'm halfway through season two right now, which means I just finished all of season one. So, you know, I've watched some bad Trek in the past few days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> some good Trek, too. Like, I forgot how many good episodes season one did actually have. Like, I always make fun of season one. But then when I rewatched it, there's quite a few episodes that are actually really good. Mm -hmm. I really like 110101. That's a great episode. There's a, there's a couple in there that are actually pretty decent episodes. The Arsenal of Freedom, which we, we talked about mm. when we talked about the phaser drone that Giorgio had in the previous episode. Yes. So season one did have its ups and downs, uh, but its downs were <laughs> really down because you had the Naked <laughs> Now and you had Data Lore, which should have been fantastic, but was just awful. <laughs> so this episode, I mean, in the in the history of all the treks that we've seen, yeah. definitely not the worst episode. I would classify this as probably my least favorite episode of Discovery thus far. Oh, wow. I, I agree, I think, with that as well. I'm trying to think of one that I didn't enjoy as much, so... 
uh, I'll have to, I'll have to figure that out, but <laughs> it, it's definitely like bottom five for me for sure. Yeah. It's, it's down there. It's definitely not the strongest episode they put out. Um, but Which there is were, sad because it's supposed to be a Saru focus. Yeah, episode. We were so, maybe that was part of what we were so, you know, we were so excited about it being a Saru heavy episode that we yeah. thought was, this was going to be great. But I think part of the reason that I didn't like it was that it was a Saru heavy episode, but we're seeing this new post Vaharai Saru that I'm not liking as much as, you know, Saru classic. (laughs) Right. I want, can we get, can we get Saru classic? I'm tired of new Saru. New Saru (laughs) is like new Coke. It's horrible. It's bad. Let's go back to the original recipe. Can (laughs) we? (laughs) So why don't we talk about some things we liked about the episode? One thing I liked was the, greater backstory and some classification of the Ba'ul and the Kelpian co-evolution, because it was kind of murky. We didn't... Right. Uh, it seemed like they were on the planet together, evolving, and then we have the brightest star, and then it seemed like they were from another planet, mm-hmm. and then we have this episode, which kind of clarified they evolved together on the planet, and yeah. the Ba'ul have more technology, or technology yeah. at all. Yeah. <laughs> and by design, of course, once they you know figured out what was going on, they used their technology to to keep their dominance. But yes, yeah, so the the fact that we now are 100 percent sure, because before we were like, wait, are they on the same planet? Did they come from another planet to come hunt these people? Are they using them for food? And now we find out that's not the case either. They're not they're not using them for food. So or at least well, it doesn't maybe. specify that that they are like they just it just says they kill them. It doesn't say that they yeah. kill them to eat them. I think we just kind of jumped to that assumption because of the mirror universe stuff where they were specifically eating kelpians and the term prey usually in nature means animal that is going to be eaten. However, yeah, you know, th- this is just like a like a population control type of situation. Yeah, yeah, right. sort of. Yeah, it's which not, is still bad. I mean, yeah. that's like that's like some Nazi going on. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's not good, that's for sure, but <laughs> it's nice to n- know a little bit more about it. So I agree. Indeed, in the Ba'ul, their design creepy but kind of beautiful. <laughs> sort of almost like the exomorphs from uh aliens oh those um, things are yeah, gorgeous I, I really like the oily texture and i actually read something about they got this actor who has a rare genetic disease that actually elongates his fingers and like overall like i i think this guy's like almost like six five but he only weighs like 130 pounds so he's super wow. thin and his extremities are a little bit like stretched and, and long. Like he has wow. these super long fingers. So they actually found an actor with a condition to enhance the physicality of this alien species. And I thought that was awesome. Mm. That is pretty cool. And I do like the way they made the bowel look. I just wish, and we'll get to it when we talk about other things. I, I, I wish they showed it to us a little differently, but I do agree that when we do see it, it's really cool looking and very interesting and something new that we haven't seen from Trek before. So that's always cool, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. Next on my list is something I wish we saw more of during the episode. Colbert's uh, current struggle, a person in a new body, which I think now has more in common with Tyler than anyone else. Which is a nice bit of irony that I, I can see where the writers are going with that. Yeah. In my prediction last week, I think we'll have Cobra forgive Tyler. And I think this is part of that 
process Mm -hmm. that they're kind of uh, hinting to. I think they both need some sessions with a psychologist. We'll see. Maybe, well. Somebody somebody get Counselor Troy down here stat. Oh, well, (laughs) Guinan might be a better choice. Um, And she actually exists right now. No no Troy love. Ouch. Well, Guinan's actually alive right now. (laughs) I I know. I I mean, yeah, technically. Uh, Yeah. Stamets says that an incident that almost takes Colbert's life made him the man he is today. And the reaction on Hugh's face shows that he doubts who or what he is right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I've, I've got that on, on my list of likes. I'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to me as well. Next up, Tyler's skepticism on carrying out the perceived wishes of the Red Angel. Yes. I think Pike is way too eager to please uh, right now, doing whatever the Red Angel wants. I think some of that, how Mr. Dewey, you were saying that you didn't like how uh, Tyler and and Pike were kind of like butting heads originally. Well, what I didn't like was how Pike reacted to Tyler initially, how Pike had this mm. instant hatred of Tyler, like instantly he was. And it, it just it seemed out of character for the Pike that we've come to know. Like he mm-hmm. seemed to be more of a reason like he could understand dislike, but he seemed to really, really hate Tyler. And that's something that's actually going to be when we talk about our dislikes. <laughs> There's going to be a lot to talk about when we get to dislikes. Um, I'm going to touch more on that whole okay. uh, phenomenon when we get to when we get to that. But but yeah, you do see that kind of they're still butting heads, but it's not nearly to the level that it was in the previous episode. I, I think this kind of was setting up for Red Angel debate mm-hmm. between uh, yeah. Tyler and Pike. Yeah. I kind of appreciate that. I don't know if anyone else does, but I, I no, no, I. I, I like that there is some tension between Pike and Tyler just because Tyler is like seemed to be thrust on Pike as like a watchdog for section 31. Right. And he's kind of been forced to have that liaison on, on the ship now. I don't know if Pike has anything against Klingons. I don't think, you know, aside from missing the war, he like hates them or anything. So I don't think it's like a specious thing or, or anything like that. I just don't think that Pike likes someone on there that he hasn't handpicked himself or is fully vetted. Cause even though Leland is a longtime friend, I don't know if he fully trusts him either. No, he's definitely a frenemy there. That's somebody who used right. to be a friend and then they've split ways. Cornwell even mentions it when, when she comes in, she's like, Oh, old friends who don't even shake hands. And they're like, uh, huh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, again, I'll talk about that a little bit more actually in my likes section. I'll talk about that as well. So for for my likes, the first one is kind of a like slash dislike. Yeah. I dislike that the sphere is now this all-encompassing knowledge thing that they are going to use as a crutch, almost like a, a, a deus ex machina type of thing, which I feel the Red Angel is essentially uh, with these bursts. I do like that they actually acknowledge these things like, Oh, what if the Red Angel has motivations? You know, they're they're now realizing that all of this stuff is more than a coincidence. And granted, they are using the knowledge of the sphere. I mean, they're acknowledging that, oh, yeah, this is super helpful. But at the same time, it also feels all connected, maybe a little bit too connected, especially with the sphere. It, it, 
just feels like the writers are like, uh, we somehow need them to figure out all this stuff. So, <laughs> so here's this sphere that's been in the area for a hundred thousand years. And you know, which Pike said, I guess I'm leaning more as a, as a dislike, but I do like <laughs> in the show there, the characters are acknowledging these things. So mm-hmm. it's not like right. the writers are oblivious to it, but at the same time, they're also the ones crafting the story to make these situations happen. Yeah. And you know, Pike is saying, oh, wow, this is going to take the Federation hundreds of years to study this whole thing, which I liked. I was like, oh, man, that's so much data. You know, there's this is going to have repercussions for other series that, you know, maybe this is why the Federation database is so up to date, blah, blah, blah. But then you've got Arium scanning this thing like a freaking Google. And <laughs> and like and data. to me, it's oh, yeah, it's just I don't know. It's it's too coincidental. But I like that the characters recognize that everything's kind of fitting together and they're not oblivious to it. Uh, I'll keep gushing about Captain Pike because I think he's a cool (laughs) son of a gun. I think Pike continues to be a really steadfast captain. Uh, He's willing to stick to his guns, but at the same time, he's open for debate and compromise. And I really like the tension of the scene when, you know, Saru's going off on Malcolm X, uh, Saru crusade going on. <laughs> Pike is like keeping his cool. I mean, he's ready about, it, it looked like he was right about to just like get the hell off my bridge type of thing. Right. But you could tell he was like, he was tempering his emotions in that mm-hmm. point. Pike was really trying to be diplomatic and like biting his tongue. And I love the tension in that scene because even Michael recognizes what's going on and can feel the tension in the room. Like and even though stood up. Oh yeah. I mean, it was, it was going to be like, Whoa. And you know, th- this is the same bridge crew that has already experienced a, a, a mutiny or two. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so they're already uh, like aware of, of that kind of stuff. But I, the whole scene of that was happening. I just liked how, you know, Awoshikun is giving glances at Detmer, like, oh crap, something's about to go down. The whole room, like that whole scene just built up this tension in a really natural way. But you, you get it. Like you get Saru's point of view. Like these are the same a-holes that have been killing his people for over 2000 years. Yeah. Like what would you do in that situation? Why the hell are we even negotiating with these people? Like F them, you know, and, but Captain Pike is trying to do what he always does by sticking by the book, you know, bend the rules a bit. We'll get to that in in one of my dislikes. (laughs) Oh yeah. But, but this scene in particular, I thought was really well done to get that sense of tension and drama without being over the top. And I really like that Burnham kind of came to Saru's defense, but at the same time, she didn't want this to go down where anyone had any regrets of like what they say or, or do. Yeah, I, I agree. The scene played out well, although uh, it is on my dislikes list, um, certain things, the way that the, the scene yeah. was handled. However, the way Pike handled it was definitely top notch. Um, I agree. Pike continues to show with the with the one exception that I talked about before, and I'll briefly mention later, Pike is has been consistently just a great captain just you know like you said willing to listen to his crew and to take their opinions and concerns into account but 
also willing to make the tough choices when it comes down to it and take the responsibility for those choices that we pointed out before. Again, this episode and that scene were great examples of Pike being a good captain. There were some some other things going on in that scene that, that we'll talk about later, but, sure. but that part of it, I agree, was great. I also really liked how they really set this story as a continuation of the Short Treks episode. I really like that they got all the backstory out of the way with that episode. Mm -hmm. They were able, you know, obviously reuse sets and locations and effects and really expand on the story. So it was great to see Serana again, but now all this time has passed. Interesting bit of note, if you watch that Short Trek, that shuttle is from the Shenzhou, and now they changed it for this episode to the Archimedes. Ah, they, they realized like they're like, oh, oops. Um, wait, she wasn't on the show. Then. <laughs> yeah. So in in the short track, uh, you can see that there's like it's like S.H.N. or something or S.H.Z. or something. Right. Dash which, zero three, which, as well, everybody knows, is short for Archimedes. Exactly. <laughs> But I guess in this episode, and I didn't notice it, but someone, like, I think in Trek Corps noticed it. Mm. They digitally erased that prefix to show that it was the Archimedes. Uh-huh. So I don't like that retcon within your own season. It's almost like get the record straight or something. Like, right. don't, what's, like. What's great about this digital streaming format, however, though, they have the ability, if they want to, to go back to that short trek and change change it on there as well Wait, so that anybody I... who streams it now right, would right. see Archimedes. And I wonder if they've done that. I wonder if they've I'll actually gone go back, back and done that. But they've done stuff for the Blu-ray to like correct coloring and stuff yeah. for season one. So I have no doubt that they'll correct some things. But one thing that they didn't correct from season one was I think it was like either Constitution or something else was misspelled on one of the graphics. And they never corrected that. I think that was the um, simulation. Sim, yeah, it was sim, like, simultation. Simultation yeah, ended. It was backwards. But yeah, I remember I think it was either you or Aaron that caught that. And I didn't catch it originally because it was backwards. And I wasn't really trying to read it. But yeah, I noticed that in rewatchings, it does still say st- sim- stimultation or whatever instead of simulation. <laughs> And I also like all of uh, Aaron's points. I think the Baul design of the creatures themselves was great. But we'll talk about some of their designs I didn't like. Coming Ooh. up. <laughs> <laughs> Coming but, but up. Everything else I, I completely agree with, with Aaron. Oh, Especially uh, Colbert. Like, mm-hmm. I really want to see more of that thread and not have it be solved in a single episode coming up. Oh, that better so, not right. be all of it, because I do have that on my likes as well, and but with a caveat, of course. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, uh, Mr. Dewey? Well, uh, the first thing on my list actually is the fact that Culber is showing some obvious signs of PTSD of some sort, having gone through this entire experience. It's not just instantly, oh, Culber's back and he's back to normal. Like, I'm glad that they didn't just have him just, boom, click, back to normal. The fact that he's kind of he's trying to figure out who he is and he's not like he's having these memories he recognizes that he has these memories but they seem distant to him and again like you like was pointed out earlier it's very similar to tyler's situation with his memories of Vogue. he can yep. access them 
but they don't necessarily feel like his memories. It's like he's accessing somebody else's memories. And I'm wondering if Hugh is feeling that way right now about his own memories. Like it feels like, because the way he's sitting there and he's like, he's correcting Stamets' story as it goes along with the facts. But it's almost like more factual. Yeah, but he's like, it's kind of, it's almost as if he's accessing a file that he's like, like, here's this information. Like I have this information, it's here, but... I don't feel it. I can see it, but it, it's literally like he's reading it off a screen as opposed to remembering it, you know, and the juxtaposition of Stamets telling the story as a memory and him reciting facts as if he's reading them off the screen was perfect. Yes. So I'm very curious to see how that continues. And again, I thought it was very well done in this episode, but we'd better get more of that. This better not have been it as far as showing that Culber is not quite right from his whole situation. Like, I really hope that we see more of that. And uh, there's a part of that scene that leads into another one of my likes here in a minute. But I really like that whole scene, and I do hope we see more of that. And I'm really curious to see how the relationship between him and Stamets plays out from here, because there seems to be a a bit of a disconnect that Stamets hasn't picked up on yet. He's still so elated just to have Hugh back that he hasn't really recognized that he's not quite right. So there's there's definitely something more there, and I hope they explore that. And that's what I think is going to be really heartbreaking if this relationship turns a different way. Because, like you said, Stamets is elated just to have the love of his life back and alive. It's kind of like, you know, this new car smell. He, he even says, oh, you know, I... I thought that scar was sexy. Oh, it's so weird not to have it on you. And, you know, Stamets is just so super excited. But at the same time, like, it real, I don't think it's really dawned on him how much this has affected Colbert. I thought that was a really nice touch by the writers, too. The whole the, the yeah. fact that Stamets didn't notice the scar right away is pointing out the fact that Stamets isn't noticing things about Hugh that are different than Mm -hmm. what he remembers. He's remembering Hugh and assigning those memories to this Hugh that we have now, including things like that scar. Like, he totally didn't even notice. That should be something that he's got this whole story, it's got this whole memory about where that scar came from and what it meant, and yet he didn't notice until it was pointed out that it wasn't there. And I think that's really kind of the writers pointing us in the direction of, hey, look, Stamets is not thinking clearly about this yet. He has not noticed all of the differences between this hue and the hue that he lost. So I really like that touch. I thought that was a fantastic, a subtle thing by the writers to to help point us in the direction of here's what might be happening. And again, if we don't get more of this, I'm going to be very disappointed. I also really liked that, uh, as we talked about before, they were showing the difference of interpretation of this information between Starfleet essentially being represented by Pike and Section 31 being represented by Tyler and the way they're taking the same exact information and interpreting it differently. You know, mm. Section 31 being on the suspicious side saying, okay, they're trying to make us do something. They're trying to they're trying to lead us into a trap or they're trying to make us do something for them. They're trying to use us. And Pike, on the other hand, with, with the Starfleet uplifting, like, no, 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 they're trying to help. They're leading us to places where we can help, where we can do something. And the suspicious side of Section 31 saying, well, but I don't know about this. And then you have Michael in the middle with the logic of being raised on Vulcan being like, well, you know, maybe it's maybe it's a little both like you know maybe we need to uh 
maybe it's not all one side or the other. Maybe there's something else going on here that we don't know about. So I really like the way that they showed that because that is the that leads into the whole faith versus and faith through science that we talked about before, about how the same information can be interpreted differently by different people. And we're seeing that played out between Section 31 and Starfleet proper through Pike and Tyler. And I, I do like that. So I think they're doing that well now. They they missed it a little bit, I think, in the previous episode when they had Pike just so angry at Tyler right from the start. But now I think they're kind of doing it right. So I do I did like that. Okay. Oh, yeah. Another thing I did like in this episode is there was a common theme throughout the entire episode of touch. I don't know if you guys caught this, but I caught this mm. a, a few times where there's several times where one character touched another, mm. whether it be on the shoulder, the hand, something like that. And every time there was a different reaction. You saw when Stamets reached out and touched Culver's shoulder and he like winced back. Like that shouldn't be the normal reaction for lovers when one touches one another. They, they should be more welcoming of it. But he was like, whoa, what are you doing? Like, wow, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And then there was the scene with Sariana and Michael where she like takes her hand and she's like just oh. touching her hand and just like like absorbing this new entity by by touch. And I thought it was a really good duality that we show all this various touching. Because we see it a few times. We see Saru putting his hand on Michael's shoulder. We see uh, there, there were a few other instances where there was touch involved and we're supposed to be seeing the response. But then you have the Ba'ul who don't touch anything at all without mm. their technology. They do not come into physical contact with anything. Their technology does. They send these little robots out to go and do their dirty work. But he stays in his little puddle. He comes out, says some stuff, goes away. Like, I'm not, you know. So I think there's this... I, I don't know if we're going to see this again or if this was a directorial choice or what it was, but I thought it was brilliant. It was one of the few things in this episode that I really thought was like, wow, that's just a really subtle, pardon the pun, touch that they added into this episode to really tie things together about the emotions that everybody is feeling at this at this time. And I, I thought that was really, really nice. See, I like that you brought that up because I did notice that all those touches but I didn't connect it as a, as a theme. So that's a really good point. That's that's a really nice thematic thread through the episode. Yeah, I agree. And I do like that uh, as seen on The Brightest Star, the short trek where we saw Kaminar before, Kaminar is still just a stunningly beautiful planet. The, the set design, or well, the CGI design probably for Kaminar is just absolutely beautiful. And, you know, Burnham even comments on the fact, like, she's like, well, if these people weren't, you know, enslaving your race, that this would be a paradise. <laughs> it, it really is a, a beautiful setting. You know, the, the beaches with the sand and then those flowers that they, that they make the tea out of and everything. It's like, oh, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And we get to getting to see it again. That's one thing about Discovery that we're not seeing a ton of is different planets. So when they do go to a planet, it's very cool to see these different designs and sets that they're they're putting together. So I did like that we got to see Kaminar again. They um they actually mentioned that because StarTrek.com put up this behind the scenes article for the making of this episode. Mm -hmm. I really 
uh, suggest that you guys look at that because there's some cool production drawings and stuff. Um, but one of the reasons uh, they did cite that they don't get to go to a lot of onset locations, at least for this early part of the season, just because of budgetary reasons. So they said when we when we do see planets, we want to make them unique and as beautiful as possible. Burnham and Burnham's comments on point. It, it's a paradise and it looks really cool. Yeah, definitely. It was it was just a, a beautiful planet, and I'm glad we got to see it again, uh, however briefly. So hopefully we get to see it again in another context. It would be interesting if that if this particular storyline continues in the series. I don't think that it's going to. I think honestly that they're done with the whole Baul Kelpian situation in this season, which is unfortunate. That's yeah. one of the things I didn't like is the fact that everything seems to be wrapped up and done as far as this storyline goes. And it's really a much bigger storyline than one episode's worth. But we'll get to that. Uh, that pretty much does it for, for what I liked about this episode. There were plenty of things to dislike, though. So, uh, Aaron, why don't you get us started? Uh, tell us what you didn't like about The Sound of Thunder. Just to echo your last point there, like other episodes of this season, the resolution to a huge issue is solved. Uh, within 50 minutes uh, rather than a yep. multi-episode arc. Yeah, and this uh, is a huge, huge issue. It's not just like a kind of big issue. It's a huge, we're, we're talking planetary evolutionary scale issue, and it's done. It's over. It's We're, we're, we're past it. What, really? <laughs> right. I mean, the previous season we have episodes that like are just a continuation of a continuation of a continuation. And then now we have just like these little isolated episodic episodes that are loosely connected because they share a similar theme. Yeah. And, you know, the red angel, the bursts. I'm glad we got Culper in the uh, episode, like the five minutes. Uh, <laughs> Was to, it even that? <laughs> right, to kind of, you know, book and the last episode so that was good i guess uh but uh, we really need uh, like that was good mult- i guess <laughs> it's perfect we really we really need some more <laughs> arcs that are bigger than the season arc within these episodes i agree i just wish they would space things out more like mm-hmm. the saru thing just like how it ended when he lost his ganglia his ganglia there you go uh so when he lost his ganglia and his whole speech that was i was like oh man they're setting up for some like season long thing nope like (laughs) they skip an episode solve the whole problem and i i kind of prefer the way ds9 did things like you know if you're gonna make star trek discovery you know have an overarching story you can carry out these b and c plots for more than just two episodes like stretch it out give it room to breathe and build tension this running theme i'm i'm not liking in some of these episodes is just this wham bam thank you ma'am it's all solved with no consequences type of thing they have to do a better job of letting some of these things breathe a little bit let us ponder on these things and i feel like they're doing that with Colbert, but they could have really milked this saru thing like oh yeah i've uh, noticed some changes in your physiology and then you know hours later 
hey, I'm spitting spikes at you. Like, <laughs> like it, it doesn't make sense. It, it just, it wraps up so quickly yeah. and it just feels like everything is just like happens, 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 happens. And no one's stopping to go, whoa, why is this happening? What's happening? Can we talk about what's happening? When Star Trek Discovery does these great dialogue pieces, it, it you know, it really sets this emotional tone. And I want to see more of that. Like, they really could have stretched out the Saru thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. It's, this was not something that should have been done in one episode. This was a major, major storyline. And this was not like, like you said, when they do a, a B or C plot in one episode, I'm usually okay with that. If they do it one, two episodes, fine. This was basically the A plot of the entire episode. The, the red angel thing was almost the B plot of this mm -hmm. particular episode. It was just like, uh, it, it was a reason to get them to Kaminar. That was it. That was really it. And then the very end to give us a little bit more of what the Red Angel is with Saru's enhanced eyesight or whatever. It's like, okay, whatever. I'm, but, I'm so sick of like, <laughs> <laughs> One thing I don't like, and I'll say right now, I don't like that they're making Saru like a Mary Sue, where he has all the solutions. Oh, I can speak 90 languages. Oh, look how look how this helps in this episode. And mm -hmm. now, oh, I've got superpowers. I've got enhanced strength now and these like defensive spike things. And look how smart I am. And look, 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 I love Saru as a character. He's one of my favorite characters in Star Trek Discovery. But if you're the first officer of a ship, and I know you mentioned this, Aaron, you can't be breaking things left and right and throwing <laughs> tantrums. And you can only use the my people excuse for so long. It's like, dude, you got to have some objectivity behind this, too. You're a Starfleet officer, too. Uh, they're the ones who saved you from this whole lifestyle and, and led to your people being evolved or whatever. But I don't know. I think they're giving him too many abilities. I just don't want his superpowers, quote unquote, to overpower his character. Yeah, I really hope they bring they kind of bring it back a notch because they've shown what he can do. If they if they give us an episode where they show what he can't do, like maybe make him mess up because he's too overconfident because well, he doesn't have that fear anymore to well, where he actually laments the, missing the fear. We already saw that with the Pav whatever people. Oh, the Pavo. The Pavo. Well, we saw him like think he was overconfident in a situation and fail. I want another episode like that to take him down a peg. Yeah, exactly. Because, like we need to show yeah. that, okay, yes, he's gained this by losing this, but he did lose something of his character. And that we'll talk about that a little bit more. But like I said, it's, it's, you know, new Saru versus original recipe Saru. And I'm not really digging it so much because Saru had these abilities before, but he had the drawback of being overly cautious because of his fear. And part of what yes. made his character great was the fact that he's a species that is based in fear, yet he his struggle to overcome that fear to do what needs to be done to become part of Starfleet. Like the fact that he was already fighting his biology to do what was necessary, because as we know from, from other seasons and other treks, 
Starfleet tests you. They put you to the test before you can join. And the fact that he was able to put aside and get past his ingrained fear to do those things and become a first officer in Starfleet, that really spoke to his character. And now they just strip that away and it's like, okay, well, now you don't have the fear. Now you're just awesome everywhere. No, we need to make sure that there is some balance here. We need to make sure that we see more than just him losing his temper. Like him losing his temper is not the drawback to all this. Like that can't be the only thing that is a downside to this whole situation. There has to be more. Otherwise the character is going to suffer. And I don't want the character to suffer. I love Saru. I want Saru to be a fantastic character as he always has been. But this episode was not the Saru we have grown to love. I almost want a scene. I kind of want more like mess hall scenes where the mess halls aren't completely empty. Like (laughs) where the hell are the extras lately? What I want to see is kind of a reversal in the first season where now instead of Michael being in the hot seat as this controversial character, I want people to start looking and treating Saru differently now and him going, wait a minute. Why are, why are people like less chatty with me? Why is, Why is my relationship seeming to change? Oh, snap. I've become a jerk. Or, you know, (laughs) I want the character to come to this realization that, wow, I I need to reevaluate myself. So, but that can only happen through external forces. I want the crew to, after this, I at least want the bridge crew to treat him like, are you going to lose your temper at me if I bring up Kelpians? Like, I, I want. I want something like that where he has to realize, oh, I'm kind of in that same position that Michael was in. Or at least I want them to have a one-on-one where she was like, look, I've been down this road where I took actions that I regretted (laughs) and people looked at me differently. I just don't want that to happen to you. Listen, I I want something to acknowledge that. Let's have a little talk, okay? Uh, (laughs) Or at least, at the very, very least, some strong stank eye from whoever has to fix that console. (laughs) At the very least. So actually, that's part of my next bullet point here. Saru not being relieved of duty immediately and being confined to quarters after destroying Starfleet yeah, property yep. and turning out, uh, speaking out of turn. Yeah, I, I agree. I have that actually on my list as well. While it did make for a good scene for Pike, it was a bad scene for Saru. And it was kind of a bad scene for Starfleet in general because Pike put up with it way too long. Yes, he was tempering his response. But the second Saru started talking over him, it should have been done. Yeah. That that should have been it. He should have been, as the captain, he should have been like, listen, I am having this conversation. You are not. Either you shut your mouth or you get off my bridge. If he continued to talk, then it would be like, now get off my bridge. And I think that still would have shown the strength of Pike as a captain without giving us all the impression that now he's just being a pushover because he feels bad for Saru's people. I don't I don't know. But it was yeah. it was kind of a weird scene because there were things that I liked about it and things that I didn't like about it. It, but I agree completely with you, Aaron. He let it go way too long. But this is the same issue that would happen with Tilly when she was freaking out. They just allowed her to like leave the bridge. Why didn't someone step in and like, whoa, 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 this is way out of character for you. I want you in sickbay yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. And we and, you know, to our credit, as a as a group of people talking about the show, we bitched about that, too. <laughs> so we're being consistent, at least. It, no, it's it's just a valid point, and it's it's becoming a pattern for this show, and it's a bad pattern, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Starfleet 
at the end of the day is a, you know, quasi-military operation. And you cannot talk to a superior officer like that. Would Janeway would have allowed that? Hell no. Definitely would not without Picard coffee. Would have allowed that? Would Kirk? Would Cisco? I, I think anyone oh, Cisco that would talked have shut to... down so quick. <laughs> oh, my God. Any other... And I'm, I'm not saying that, that Pike is a pushover. It was a tense situation. And you could see him ramping up to be like, get the hell off my bridge. But, you know, Michael stepped in, so we didn't see where that would have fully let. But, you know, if this were any other captain, that conversation would have ended like 30 seconds ago. (laughs) Exactly. And and I do have to say that this is another testament to Anson Mount's acting ability because you saw it on his face. You saw it restrained on his face. He didn't say a word, but you can just just in his eyes and just the, the contours of like, oh, my gosh, like. That restrained anger of like, are you kidding me right now with what you're saying? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm the captain, right? It was kind of similar to when you kind of saw that coming when he first walked on the bridge and Saru's sitting in the captain chair and Pike walks up and just kind of sits, stands there waiting. And Saru's like, what? Oh, 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 you want me to get out of your chair? I get it now. Like, I saw it kind of coming with that. But that was enough like that. That scene by itself was enough to demonstrate, Okay, Saru is being overconfident. Yeah, he is. You know, normally he would have been up out of that chair the second he heard the turbo lift door open, knowing that the captain might be behind him. And he's like, oh, we got to get out of this chair. No, he was just like chilling, like, yeah, I'm running this stuff now. And then like Pike had to like stand there like, "Uh, excuse me. That would have been around my spot. <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. I'd, I'd like to get by now. Yeah, it was it was uh, that scene would have been enough. That was enough. I liked that scene. But then, yeah, they let him go way too far. I completely agree, especially with, you know, yes, we know he's strong. We've seen him crush communicators. We've seen him destroy stuff. You know, we know that he's a strong species, which is making less and less sense as they explain the Baul-Kelpian relationship when they were a quote-unquote prey species, when you thought, okay, so they're being chased places all the time. No, they literally sit in a circle and allow themselves to be killed. Like, okay, so why did they develop super running speed? Why are they super strong? Why They wouldn't have needed to develop any of this to run away from sitting in a circle and getting disintegrated. That's a lot of this is making less and less sense as they progress this story. So lack of security on the Baul stronghold oh, after Saru breaks free and destroys their drones. I mean, that was, that was all the drones they guy, had right? that entire stronghold. They only had those, what four drones. That was it. That was all of them. They, they didn't think they needed more than that. Like, well, it, it, I mean, I can see it from a view of like, hey, they've been kings of this castle for 2000 years and they've never had anyone challenged. So in a way, they're kind of lazy about it. But I mean, why didn't at the very least that one guy show up again? Like, hey, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what the f- are you doing? <laughs> the one like, thing I will give them credit on that point <clears throat> is the fact that they brought it back around to the point where they're explaining the fact that Saru's species, the Kelpians, were more powerful and more deadly to the Ba'ul than the Ba'ul were before they had their technology. So I can understand that Ba'ul person not coming back because he's probably terrified of a post-Vahare Kelpian. So I I can understand him not coming back. That, That I'll give them. But the fact that they had all those other drones at the ready 
and then suddenly that was it. They just let let them be. The only explanation that I might let them get away with is the fact that they were at that moment concentrating on, uh, you know, trying to destroy the entire planet's population of Kelpians in that exact right. moment. Like, so maybe their attention was focused elsewhere. I don't know. But I... I'm giving them. I'm playing devil's advocate here. I actually agree with you. Here. Somebody should have. Somebody should have been busting in on them long before he was able to build the communicator out of those parts. Oh, second. Oh, my next. <laughs> <point>. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to go there, so that's why I, I, I led you there. You like that? <laughs> Saru's ability to turn any Baul device into a communications <laughs> device. What you can do that? <laughs> granted, the drones must be able to communicate with each sure. other and stuff but being able to turn it in like we couldn't like take a router and and a couple other spare computer parts and make a a phone a wi-fi and phone or just, something not just spare computer parts but literally computer parts that have been crushed and smashed <laughs> and thrown against a wall and then like hey i'm gonna take all these random parts from this you know you even if you take like we'll use an almost exact example imagine like three or four drones with web enabled gopros crashed into your yard you couldn't <laughs> take those parts and just within a few minutes turn it into a smartphone that you could uh, face chat with somebody with and that's well, essentially no. what they show saru doing in this episode it's like yes technically i I guess those things had some of the necessary components, but really? And he's able to get on the exact frequency to get a hold of Discovery. Uh, you're stretching, you're stretching my, I expect when watching any sci-fi, really any TV show in general, TVs, movies, whatever, I expect to suspend my disbelief a little bit. I know that's going to come because there's no way that you can push the story along with everything being 100% accurate. If they did, it would be boring as crap. I get that. But there are times when they stretch it too far, and I completely agree with you, Aaron. This was one of those times. Remember, you can watch MacGyver on CBS All Access. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Oh my god! Oh, but yeah, it's, it's completely ridiculous. Uh, no right. tools, and he's able to build this communication device that appropriately just fits in this slot. In I, I was willing to give it a pass in the short trek because he had several pieces. From, they they had said that he'd been accumulating these pieces for years over a, a span of many years, and so he finally had enough pieces to just send out a general message that happened to be picked up by a Starfleet ship. No, this was five seconds. I'm going to grab these random chunks of this and boom, boom, boom. Hey, I have a communicator that I can instantly talk to Discovery on. What? No. Nah, bro. It would have been, <laughs> I would have accepted more like him, like going over, like by the door and being like, oh, hey, look, there's a comm panel here. Let me just reconfigure this. Yeah. That would be more believable. Right. But, but, the, but the, drone, the drone thing was ridiculous. Yeah. I liked the drones in, like I said, with, with the whole theme of touch that they had going on, the fact that the Baul didn't want to touch anything. Like, I liked mm -hmm. the fact that they were using the drones, but I did not like the fact that Saru was able to instantly co-opt that technology so quickly and easily without... Yeah, that was... That I was mean, he has had experience with Baul technology, but to this level is ridiculous. Yeah, right. it was, again, pushing the story along more quickly than it needed to be. It was one of those things that you would see from an older Trek series like TOS or TNG where they had to wrap up the story in the one right. episode. They don't 
have to wrap up the episode. To be fair, we did give New Eden great reviews because of the way that it was kind of classic Trek, but we gave it those good reviews because it was classic Trek style done right. Yes. This was classic Trek style done wrong. That's what it was. And we'll, we're willing to call them out on it. And that's what we're doing. So plus, plus it takes the tension out of the scene. Like at no point did I feel, Oh man, they're really in trouble. You know, Saru and, and Serana, what are they going to do? Because it went by too fast. There was no tension. There was a little bit when, you know, Saru was like, Hey, what are we doing here? What's going on? But then it was just like, again, because they're trying to wrap up the episode it was just like sequence of events that happens too fast all in the span of 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. They don't need to do that. This is not an episodic series where people are going to just watch one episode by itself and then not watch for several weeks and then maybe pick up another episode. That's the way TV used to be. You couldn't count on people tuning in every single week to get an overreaching story arc. You had to be able to tell a complete story in your one episode in order to get your views. And I understood that. That's the way old TV works. I'm glad that's not the case anymore. With streaming, even with older TV shows, now they know, hey, I can tell this overreaching arc because somebody later is going to be able to just stream this whole thing in one day if they want to. So for them to go back to that type of episodic nature where they wrap things up too quickly it's it only works in comedies like honestly comedies i completely give a pass to them you know a comedy show like the simpsons or anything like that where everything wraps or up and then the next episode exactly in the next episode everything is back to normal with maybe brief mentions of what occurred in the past i can totally give a pass to this is not that and one of the things we've praised about discovery previously is the fact that it wasn't like that. The fact that you did have to, with the exception of, you know, season one, if you watch every episode except, let's say you watch every episode except for the the mud episode. If you watch that entire series, that's one story. If you miss any one of those episodes, you're missing quite a bit. The mud episode was really the only one that was like a one-off, and even that did have ties back to the other episode. But you right. could, in theory, miss that episode and still get the complete story. But what, no uh, other episode. There's no other single episode in season one that you could miss and not be like, hey, wait, what happened? What I'm really interested in behind the scenes wise is that Greta Berg and Aaron Harberts or whatever were at this time, I think, off the show. Like after episode six, they were done from uh, Discovery and were removed as executive producers with that whole drama, like behind the right. scenes in the writer's room. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe some of this could have been their direction, but now I'm curious to see how the tone of the rest of this season differs. Mm. Maybe we'll get a more kind of spaced out, less fast paced type of series, but we, we can only speculate. But yeah, right. I'm, I'm really curious to see the evolution of the behind the scenes change and how that will affect the show on the front end, because they even said like, they put so much budget into the, like these first six episodes. They, I mean, they really had to like find a way to stretch the budget in a way. You, you kind of saw it in some of these earlier episodes that there's more stuff that happens on ship sets and feels more like a bottle show. And I'm fine with that as long as the stories are good. Yeah. But this was the first one that I definitely felt like this was a misstep in terms of pacing in in a major way. Mm. Yeah. I I. I completely concur it's this episode was definitely 
off book for them as discovery as we've known it. You know, even when they've done episodes that were independent episodes that you could watch by themselves previously they had done it well you know we talk about you know it always comes back to new eden i think when we look at this season specifically new eden was definitely a show that was in the classic trek tradition of having a single issue to deal with a little bit of stuff going on in the background that might go back and forth between the previous and the next episodes we don't know but mainly we've got this one issue to deal with and they do resolve it within the one episode but they did it so well that you thought hey maybe they're able to do this but this episode ain't it guys <laughs> this wasn't it this was not it <laughs> so next up on my list here the baul ships are huge but why do they need to be so big if there's no evidence that they've gone beyond their planetary system? Well, I, OK, this is the one I, point where I do have to disagree with you a little bit, because they did yeah. point out that the Baul achieved warp 20 years prior. So they've had uh, 20 yeah. years to theoretically explore the galaxy on their own. They did point out that the Kelpian homeworld is outside of Federation space. So it's possible that the Baul are cognizant of what is and is not Federation space and therefore have restricted their own exploration to non-Federation space specifically to avoid the Federation because they know that if the Federation found out what they're doing, that they'd probably want to step in, even though the Federation, when they contacted them, said, we won't we won't interfere with your evolutionary balance, which obviously, you know, guess what? But they said they weren't going to. <laughs> but right. I could I could completely understand that that Baul, having warp capability for 20 years, have probably explored some other areas of space. Uh, it's right. just but this particular story only focused on their homework. True. I, I wonder if because the Baul fear the Kelpians coming back so much and they do this culling, I wonder if the ships are so big is because the, aside from, you know, their underwater compound on the main planet, I wonder if most of their population has moved to these ships. Oh, that that's a possibility also. But yeah, I think honestly, I think it's a defensive posture. I think they realize based on their contact with other cultures that what they're doing is probably considered wrong by in, in quite a few <laughs> by quite a few different cultures. And therefore, they have built ships necessary to defend their way of life, which involves mm. this, you know, horrific <laughs> decimation of another population <laughs> of sentient species. So mm -hmm. they've built these ships that they feel confident will defend them against any well-doers coming around trying to, to stop them. Because you uh, saw how big they were compared to the Discovery. Like, right, that's... Here's an interesting notion. If you read that behind-the-scenes article on Star Trek, originally these ships were ground-based and were supposed to, like, crawl around like crabs, which kind of, well, you know, go, yeah, know. Which, which kind of goes back to their aquatic nature. But they, they were supposed to be, like, culling ships, kind of like, yeah, World War of the Worlds. Like, like they would just scoop up Kelpians or, or whatever. But they said that changed due to how the story evolved and, and changed. Okay. That, that does make a little bit of sense in their design. You notice yeah. the ships were very similar in design to their the pylons or the, the watchful yes. eyes that they had erected in the villages. So, you know, there was a design theme that was constant. But yeah, I think, I think honestly the point of them being so big was they had to be a threat to discovery. If they weren't right. a threat to mm -hmm. discovery, a legitimate threat, yes, the entire Federation 
in theory, could beat just this one planet's fleet of ships. But Discovery definitely would have been destroyed in that conflict. And that was kind of the point to the story was that it was Pike's will against theirs as we're not going to give in to your demands, even though you will clearly destroy all of us. And that was an, another point for Pike when he was like, no, you know, yes, you, we have a Kelpian on board, but he is a political asylum seeker. He is a Federation officer. He ain't yours no more. He's ours. We will fight to the death to keep him. We are not going to just turn him over to you. So once again, point for Pike for being an awesome captain in that moment, even though the circumstances were contrived to get him there. Yeah, I see. I think the point could have been made with just one of those sh- Considering the size of it, I don't think they needed 10 ships that were <laughs> the size of probably a starbase, a, a Federation starbase. It was huge, but I'll, I'll move on. The no, I, I completely understand your point. I don't don't interpret my, you know, devil's advocate playing to be disagreement on this. I actually do agree with you that unless they're actually out there exploring like those type of ships, those are ships that typically you would only see designed designed if they were a conquering type species. Right. In which case, we would have heard more about the Ba'ul if they were going around to other planets conquering them. And those but, but types see... of ship designs seem to be the type of ship designs that a conquering type species would create. But the Ba'ul seem to be happy confined to their little area. So, no, I, and, I agree and, and with and your I agree point. With you, I agree with you that they would have more robust ships to completely defend on a planetary scale because Burnham made them seem like they were supremely isolationist. Mm -hmm. So I I like that they have big ships because I think they could hold down that planet for a while for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially if, if what we saw was not the entire fleet, if what we saw was only a portion of their fleet, then they they called them scout vessels. Oh, (laughs) Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh man. Yeah. And and that, that, that underwater base was massive. Yeah. Right. Well, they say it was like 40 or 50 kilometers wide. Yeah. Just that one. And you got to figure they most likely. Well, they did show that one activating all the pylons across the the planet. So it's possible that that's the only one that they have. But I would think they would probably have one in every major body of water. Yeah. But who knows? Indeed. We'll probably never know because I don't think they're ever going to touch on the (laughs) Kelpian story again. My next bullet point here. I know they're. The Ba'u are probably really afraid of the post-Baharai Kelpians, but I don't understand why they needed to keep him alive to do like a scan of him, I guess, to see what makes the Kelpian tick. But why didn't they just kill him? If they killed him right from the (laughs) get-go, they wouldn't have had any issue at all. So it's, yeah. it's a valid point. Honestly, I, I really have no, I mean, other like, than to keep Saru alive for the storyline of Discovery. That's it. There really is no reason for them to, if they wanted to study it, they have hundreds of opportunities all the time. You know, Thousands. they're doing these cullings all the time. They can, yeah, exactly. Millions. They, <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like a Bond story. Where the villains just keep them alive. Yeah. (laughs) You caught me monologuing. (laughs) (laughs) But I digress. Um, My last bullet point here is to quote Captain Picard Who the hell are we to determine the next course of evolution for this people? A nice tie in the insurrection where the drones were heavily inspired from. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I didn't even think of that. Uh, like, it, it came to me, like, right when I'm watching this, I'm like, dude, 
I know what I'm going to talk about. Nice. Uh, although it may seem morally right, what we perceive as an imbalance between the Kelpian and the Ba'ul, what gives us the right to artificially induce an evolutionary process on a with planetary scale? Word. With speakers. <laughs> At least they weren't playing uh, any Beastie Boys. <laughs> hey, I like Star Trek Beyond. <laughs> no, I did too. Absolutely no research as to what this will do to, right. uh, to the planet. Pollard was like, well, you're the only one that we know about, so I have no idea what the long-term <laughs> effects are this are. So why the hell induce it to, this could end up killing them? I think, well, okay, to that point, I will point out that they did have the data from the sphere. Again, oh, the sphere. we had this magic, oh, we have this sphere. magic sphere data that shows that basically what happens is that they become stronger and more predatory than yeah and and very spiky and shooting spiky they're like freaking porcupines they can shoot those things right at you but as burnham points out the baul now have the technology to defend against their natural predatory species so in theory they should be able to work out a, a better balance than they had in the past but again this is something that should have taken more than one episode. You, we shouldn't have to just be speculating on who, right. well, what might happen? Well, you know what? Chances are they're not going to be mentioned again. So, you know, I, I can throw out theories and be like, oh, well, maybe, but you're absolutely right. I predicted last week. What did I predict? I said... General Order 1 is going to be broken so hard. And it really, really, <laughs> really was. Like, on a planetary scale. Like, not even just a little bit. He says, well, we can bend General Order 1, but let's not break it. No, they broke it. They straight up they said... They broke the hell out of they, it. They straight up said, you know what? Forget it. We're just evolving this entire species. And, and you know <laughs> what else? big. Uh, the, the writers seem to be doing this quite often. We had a reason why we weren't going to be spore jumping anymore because it was decimating the network. Yeah. They took yep. that away. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we had a reason why we don't see any Kelpians in the future. They just took that away. Yep. yep. <laughs> what the heck are they doing? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You're bringing up great points. It's, yeah. it's true. So those yeah, are my like, biggest complaints. It's like, it, it, it's like, all right, oh, they're setting cannon back on course. It was the same thing like with Pike's mention of like, oh, we'll just rip out the hollow communication system. No! <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, that was awful. The one thing I will say, and this leads into one of my predictions, or not predictions, but unanswered questions later on, the reason that we don't see Kelpians in the future, you know, we do know that, yes, okay, the Kelpians post-Vahari are stronger and faster and have spikes, but we do know that Ba'ul still have far superior technology. And despite the fact that their one ship is broken and their pylons are broken, that doesn't mean that all of their technology, they still have all of these ships with a hell of a lot of power. It is still very, very conceivable that as soon as Discovery leaves to go do its next whatever the Red Angel tells it to do, the Ba'ul are going to wipe out the entirety of the, the Kelpian species as soon as Discovery is gone. That may be why we don't see any Kelpians in any future series <laughs> one thing so that electromagnetic burst thing that the red angel does that takes out the uh yeah. their technology yeah. we yeah. don't know how badly damaged their technology is it yeah. could have wiped out technology planet wide. Yeah, yeah it's possible <laughs> <laughs> i don't i don't i i mean 
There, that's not even like that's a thing that I I didn't I didn't even put it on my dislikes (laughs) list. But there was a thing that I disliked about this whole Red Angel situation that I haven't even that I haven't even touched on yet. But you bring it up is the fact that these Red Angels seem extremely or this red angel we don't know if it's more than one or not it's so freaking powerful why does it need the discovery's help or federation help or spock's help or whoever the heck it's contacting this week why does it need their help it obviously can come in and do whatever it wants whenever it wants why are they leading the discovery around by the neck to to do different things like is it just so they can witness them doing these magical things. I, it, it bugged me that the Red Angel stepped in at the last moment to save the day when previously it was the Red Angel directed them to where they needed to save the day. Like, I, I didn't mind that storyline of this Red Angel popping up saying, hey, over here, guys, over here, somebody needs help. Over here. Come here, come here, come here. Oh, there you go. Okay, good. I'm gone. And then, but now this time it's like Red Angel pops up, says, hey, over here. And then Discovery is incapable of completing their mission. So the Red Angel pops up and says, oh, guys, do I have to do everything myself? And just fixes it. If you were capable of fixing it in the first place, why why didn't you? All right, let's get to some of my uh, yes. dislikes really quick. Go for um, it. So, and I, I completely agree with you, Eric. It's, yeah, it's frustrating. While Star Trek has done set redressings oh. before, or they've used reparts of sets for alien cultures, I thought the redress of Discovery's transporter room for the ball holding area was completely lazy. Beyond and lazy. Oh my gosh. It was the same layout. There was the same pylons. They just slapped stuff on the wall. It's literally the exact same room layout, which is disappointing considering Saru just beamed from there. So, <laughs> like, the room is, like, exactly the You're freaking like, Wait same. Minute, what? Yeah. In, all, in all of the uh, trailers that mm-hmm. we saw, we always assumed that was the transporter room. Yes, we, we've talked about this. We said we've seen Saru and Serana in the transporter room of a starship. No, we didn't. The scene no. that we thought was, yes, Sir, yes, Serana did end up in a transporter room on a starship, but that's not the scene they showed in the trailers. The scene they showed in the trailers was on the Ba'ul stronghold, but we thought it was it's, this this transporter room because they reused the set and they didn't change it enough to make us think otherwise. That is yeah. laziness to the extreme. And I mean, especially for an alien on. species like Ba'ul, who seem to be aquatic in nature. Who the hell is building this? They're drones? Yeah, like aquatic it's, or it's oilistic? Yeah. Is that thing? What? <laughs> oilistic? I don't know oh, what they... Oilistic. Yeah, I don't but, know. But I'm going to have to rewatch the preview for this episode again, because I thought there was different shots of the Ba'ul than what they showed. Right. No, I agree with you. I thought we were going to see it a couple of times. I thought we saw it, like, on the bridge. I thought there was a group of them. Uh, yeah. Oh, I we, thought there was more than one that I saw in the trailer. I'm going to have to look at that again. I think so, it was just kind of the way they shot it. And I'll talk about it in, in kind of my dislikes as well. But yeah, no, but, I, I, I but kind of agree with what you're saying was ridiculous. Yeah, and I absolutely. know they made it a point on the behind the scenes before to like say, oh, well, for this Shenzo, we just rip off, you know, these decals and it's the discovery. But 
That's fine. That, those are those are star those fleet, are vessels. fleet ships. Yeah, but, and even Burnham in the first season, she even points out like there's a line she says. She goes, you know, one Starfleet vessel is pretty much like another, and you know, finding the Jeffries tubes to run away from Ripper at that point. And that was a perfect line to to explain reusing specific sets for different ships. I get it. That's the way. I mean, look at if you even today, if you go onto one naval vessel to another naval vessel, besides the names. They're going to be very, very similar. They're built very, very similar. Even different classes of ships are built very similar. You're going to see the same type of design elements everywhere because it's standardized. Now we're talking about an entirely different species, an entirely different planet, completely separate from the Federation. And they just so happen to create the exact same layout as Discovery's transporter room. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's dumb. It was it was crap. Uh, I, I I I will not hold anything back on that. That was so so lazy. And here's the thing: like when Star Trek's done it in the past, like I think uh, one example I'll pull from Voyager is when they did the Prometheus bridge, and there was those very distinct uh, railings. Okay, they use those railings in the Sona set for Insurrection, an, another Insurrection mention, which that set became uh, a, another, like, a museum in Voyager, like an alien museum. But they did enough, like, different set dressings, you know, maybe turn the railings around or put them upside down or did something where, okay, that's just a set piece as an overall aesthetic, this is literally the exact same room layout and proportions, even with the, the, the oily pit in the middle. Uh, yeah, that's just the transporter pad. Come on. It's <laughs> bad. It was bad. That, that instantly took me out of, out of the moment of the episode. Yeah, exactly. It was one of those things that you looked at and you're like, Hey, wait a minute. Oh, this is the scene from the trailers that we thought was the transporter room. It's not the transporter. Wait, what the crap is going on here? It, and it, it takes you out of the moment, which is never a good thing. I always talk about this. Anything that takes you out of the story is bad. And this did. And this did. And then, um, I mean, we, we've expanded upon this, but I really disliked, you know, changing the entire fate of a species with a flick of, you know, an intergalactic microphone. That It's ridiculous. Like, Pike went from, oh, yeah, General Order 1 to... Let's change the whole species. I really, really, really dislike that. And as I mentioned before in in my likes, uh, I don't need to retread it, uh, but the sphere data and red angels seem to be too much deus ex machina. Uh, It's it's too much. Like with the red angel that can do seemingly whatever it wants, and they have 100,000 years of information which they can Google search with Arium, it's, I don't know, nothing seems really earned right now. Yeah. First up on my list of things that I, I did not like about this episode, and I'll, I'll try to be as brief as possible because honestly, you guys have touched on a lot of them. But one thing that we talked about previously is Pike and Tyler's relationship. Previously, even though I thought it was kind of off brand for Pike, he really seemed to hate Tyler. And I'm like, okay, like this doesn't seem like the Pike we've come to grow and love, but this is the relationship they have. He has this adversarial, like confrontational, just absolute hatred of Tyler. And now in this episode, they're just mildly adversarial. It's just the difference between Starfleet and Section 31. There's no personal feeling anymore. And it's like, where did that go? Why did that go? If you're going to introduce that, if you're going to make us think that Pike hates Tyler for some reason, 
I need some explanation or resolution as to why it's gone back to just a kind of civil disagreement type of relationship. What happened? Where where did that change? We didn't see that. I need Where's to see piece? some sort of resolution <laughs> as to why Pike is suddenly <laughs> accepting of Tyler as a Starfleet officer, as even as a member of Section 31, whereas before Pike was adamant that he's like you will stay on the bridge you don't talk unless you're spoken to you like like he was mad at him and now he's just like i disagree with you sir it's like what what happened like come on give me something we also talked about previously you know pike put up with saru's new quote-unquote attitude way too long Mm -hmm. yes saru's speech did have some merit and i understand it in the storyline that they're trying to tell however it should not have been allowed to go on that long. Again, if we were spreading this over multiple episodes, it wouldn't have had to. So the fact that he allowed it to go on so long and that the rest of the crew, you know, nobody else stepped up and said, Psst, Saru, you're not the captain. Like somebody, somebody should have said something other than Michael just stepping in, just like, hey guys, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Pike just put up with it for a little bit too long. Even though he did play, like, like I said, It's so hard to complain about that scene because it did play out so well. But at the same time, it's one of those things that had they expanded this story past one episode, that scene wouldn't have needed to be condensed as it was. And it felt condensed. And because of that, it felt like they let Saru get away with too much for too long. Especially like Aaron said, the destruction of the console. As soon as that happened, that should have been the last thing. Yeah, that was crap. That would that should have been the last thing. As soon as you break something on the bridge because you're mad, you need to be off the bridge. You shouldn't be able to break something and then be given time to give a speech. Give a speech, then be told to shut up, and then break something, then leave. Okay, I can follow that timeline. But the way it was presented, like he broke stuff, was given time to 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 speak. It's like, no, somebody should have cut him off. One thing that really, really bugged me, and I know this is just a tiny technical detail, but it just, it, it bugs me mm-hmm. so much when Trek ignores its own rules. Either you can transport when the shield's up, or you can't. Yeah, no, this bothered me. Choose as well. one. Oh yeah, yeah. Choose it's, one. It's a, it's a red alert. Shields are already up. Come on. <laughs> the shields are up, and Saru just transports off the ship, supposedly to the planet, but he ends up on the this well, what we think is the ship originally, but then we find out is the stronghold. But did he? How did? Did he transport to the stronghold? Did he transport down to the planet and then they transported him to the stronghold? Like, first of all, that was never explained how he ended up where he was. But also the fact that he transported while the frickin shields were up. Like, seriously, this is a major plot point in many series. Many episodes have hinged upon the fact that you cannot transport while the shields are up. And yet Saru seems to have no problem doing so in this particular episode. It's like, come on, if you're going to make rules, especially rules that dictate plot points in other stories, you got to stick to them. Right. At least I have give a me a throwaway line. Why he could have transported out, but I won't I, go into that right now. No, no, I I get it. There, I, there I, have I been think it had something to do with the timer. <laughs> That's that, possible. That he said. Yeah, no, there have yeah. been instances in other treks, and the episode where Riker is on the transfer program and serves as first officer on a Klingon ship, and mm-hmm. he gives that transponder to the Klingon captain so they can transport him over to the Enterprise when he's and Picard specifically tells chief o'brien shield control is yours so the transporter chief has control of the shields to drop them transport put them back up 
okay, all we need is a throwaway line like that. We didn't get anything like that. We just mm-hmm. have Saru making an unauthorized transport. This is something that only the captain should be able to authorize, especially once the first officer has been relieved of duty and sent off the bridge. So I'm like, ah, guys, stick to your own technological canon here. Like, I'm okay with certain things. And I didn't, I didn't even put it on my dislikes, but this is part of my dislikes. The fact that I have bitched and moaned and complained about people bitching and moaning and complaining about the set not looking like TOS with switches and dials and buttons. And then in this episode, there's switches and dials and buttons on the console. And I'm like, what the <laughs> crap? This is not good. When he says arm the torpedoes and then he like goes over there and it's like certain pushing buttons. I'm like, what are those? What? Real buttons? On the cut, no, what are you doing? You are pandering to the like wrong that, group of to people. Me it, it feels like, oh, yeah, manually arm those suckers, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it they did it well in the fact that it was like integrated in, and I'm like, okay, for certain systems, maybe I can accept that there are some still some physical safeguards to prevent against butt dialing, you know, so to speak, <laughs> but. Still, it felt like a direct affront to me. It's it's as if the writers listened to the show and heard me complain about people complaining about not having switches and dials on the bridge of the Discovery. And then they're like, oh, I know what we're going to do. This this Eric Dewey guy <laughs> well, is bitching about not having uh, dials and buttons on the bridge. We're well, putting we'll dials, and buttons. dials and buttons. Because <laughs> it wasn't only on the uh, torpedo oh, assembly. I, I it was know. on the... It was on the like, navigation as well. I was like, are you kidding me right now? You see, from from the onset of season one, they said that the show is going to become more and more like TOS. So it's going to come to a point where it's going to not completely switch over, but you're going to see more elements that will make it more TOS-like. Uh, I'm... See, and I've always maintained, <laughs> I've always maintained from the beginning that I'm okay with the visual continuity not being perfect because of not only the advancement in filmmaking technology, but the advancement of physical technology. Like the fact that we, all three of us, have touch screens in our pockets, do we not? I mean, I've mine's not in my pocket right, right now. now. It's uh, it's on. It, well, my yeah, mine's on the counter right now. <laughs> you know, but the fact of the matter is, with the exception of my soundboard, that's the only thing literally in my technological world that has any sort of physical dials. <laughs> or switches on it, you know? Other than that, and the keyboard on my computer, there is nothing physical. Everything is touchscreen. Everything is digital. Everything is just this. It's better than was anticipated and in the 60s for the future. And so I'm okay with the visual continuity not being 100% right because we're looking at the 60s vision of the future versus the 2010s version, almost the 2020s version of the future. I'm okay with that. You don't need to downgrade your technology to satisfy the stupid people bitching and moaning about that. Ah, it's just, it bugs me. That wasn't even on my list, but I, I went there. As I said before, General Order 1 was broken very, 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 very badly. As I predicted, I said, I said, when I saw the trailer, I'm like, oh man, they are going to, they're going to violate General Order 1 so hard. And they did. It was just, just so, so blatant. It was like, here, let's just affect the entire 
evolutionary process of an entire species on a planet. That's not just a little bit. That's not revealing yourself to one or two people or even a group of people. That's planet-wide. We are changing your evolution. That's big. That is huge. And I will be very, very disappointed if there are not at least the mention of repercussions somewhere down the line. However, I fear that it won't be mentioned. I think the Kelpian storyline, with the exception of Saru on the Discovery, is done. I don't think we're going to really see any more of that in this season, and that is disappointing, the fact that I think that. I was also disappointed to see that they could seemingly use this sphere data to pull up thousands of years of information on the Kelpian homeworld, but yet there's been no mention of them even trying to look up information on these red bursts slash red angels. I would even a throwaway line of, yeah, we searched the data for uh, information on these red angels or red bursts and we didn't find any. Okay, good. That's fine. Especially considering our all of our predictions later on, it would make sense that there'd be no mention of them. But the fact that they haven't even mentioned trying to search for them yet, they're able to, within moments, pull up thousands of years of information on Kelpian history. Seriously? You haven't searched for the Red Angels or Red Bursts on this database yet? Really? Come on, guys. Seriously. <laughs> and the last thing on my major dislikes list here is the the kind of horror movie version, the style that they showed slash not showed of the Baul as it appeared. The kind of flashing back and forth of, here's the Baul in the background, and then here's Saru, and then here's the Baul in the background, and then here's Serana, and then here's the Baul in the background. Like, it really felt like campy horror movie, we're going to show you the monster, but not show you the monster type of thing. It's like, no, just, it's a new species on Star Trek. Just show me the new species. Like, don't try to play this stupid horror flick game with uh, me. I didn't I, like I, that. I disagree slightly just because I like that they were building that tension in the scene, and it really enhanced the design and made them creepy. But I, I can see your point, too. I, no, I, I totally respect that. And like I said, I... I am not a fan of horror movies. Like, that is not my genre. I don't appreciate that type of, that style of filmmaking personally. I know a lot of other people do. I mean, my co-host on Socially Awkward, Steve-O, is a huge horror fan. He loves that stuff. He would probably have loved this scene. But for me, it, it felt a little too much like a campy horror movie type of monster reveal than a Trek species reveal which is what i thought it should have been so for me personally that is a dislike and like i said i'm not going to judge anybody who disagrees with me because i i think a lot of people liked the way that that played out but personally for me that was a dislike oh yeah yeah i totally see that oh so, man so i will quit bitching and moaning about the episode <laughs> and now we should talk about what unanswered questions we were left with after this episode all right my question if the Ba'ul are an intelligent aquatic species, why didn't they just stay away from land? <laughs> why Who do are you, M. Night Shyamalan Ding Dong? Are you, uh, is this science? Why do they have a humanoid appearance if they are aquatic? Why did they evolve on land and migrate to the water to survive from the Kelpians? And do they breathe oxygen like the Kelpians? I mean, that guy was in the room, so I would assume so. Well, right. he was in the room, but he was still covered in his oil slick. Like, was that oil slick part of Oh, is that like their species? spacesuit? 
or was oh, that what he lives in? You know, so oh. there are still a lot of unanswered questions regarding the Baul that unfortunately Which we'll never know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I fear that that storyline is done and over with unless we get novels or comics about it, mm-hmm. because I feel like they think that everything was resolved in this episode. And those of us watching are like, wait a minute, <laughs> we have questions. <laughs> but I feel like the writers thought, okay, we're done. That's me washing my hands of the whole situation. Let's move on to the next red burst and Spock. We're going to distract everybody with Spock. Here's Spock, everybody. Don't worry about the Baul and the Kelpians. We got Spock. I think that's how it's going to be. Mr. Barry. Yeah, so... Are the red bursts showing up in the same places that they first appeared, or are they moving around? It, yeah. Was the initial scans not quite accurate to their location in the galaxy, but just more of like a general area, which granted could be like maybe a hundred or more light years? Mm-hmm. If so, couldn't Discovery just be in the area or pre-scout some of these locations? I completely agree with you. It's very inconsistent how they've like they described these bursts came up and i think i feel like they only described the the bursts coming up all at once to give us a specific number other than that i think it was very very vague and i i feel like they federation has the technology to pinpoint these a little bit more than they have and the fact that they said these bursts appeared and then they disappeared we don't know where they are well weren't you recording seriously like didn't you have probes didn't you have space stations didn't you have ships out there recording these signals like yeah some of them weren't in our the quadrant of the galaxy that we've explored okay so we've had to use the spore drive to go to terralysium to do that okay i get it that works that's fine but the fact that it's not just the Federation that's seen these bursts. We know the Klingons have seen these bursts. Did they get a better fix on these bursts? Are we going to run into the Klingons when we show up to one of these sites because they thought to pre-scout the location? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. This is a completely unanswered question because it's like, okay, so these bursts appeared. Were they literally there for like a millisecond so that we weren't able to get any sort of fix other than just general vicinity, like, cause we have a map, they show a map of where these bursts appeared, but yet somehow we still don't know where they are. It's, it's very confusing as to yeah. whether or not we know or don't know where these bursts appear. And then they seem to appear and they don't say like, oh yes, this was near where one of the bursts we recorded appeared. No, it's just like, oh, this burst appeared over here by the Kelpian homeworld. Like, what yeah, was they that? Yeah, surprised. Like, yeah, like, like the- uh, o- Kuhn was like, oh, we're above this planet called Kaminar. Like, y- yeah, Saru's freaking home planet. Like, <laughs> like. Right. Yeah, it it uh, seems like I don't know if they didn't think it through when they said that like these bursts appeared and then disappeared. They didn't really explain to us whether or not like were they completely untraceable? Were they masked well, in some well, way? In, the, in in brother, they did say that you know the scans did show up anytime they tried to scan them. They got all this you know really bad feedback, mm. and that's what eventually oh, okay. really overloaded the Enterprise's systems. So mm. that's why I'm kind of suggesting that maybe it's a more of like a in the area kind of inconclusive like we know the general vicinity but the galaxy is so vast that general vicinity could be right. you know hundreds of light years yeah so and if it's outside of federation space they can't exactly just 
go right. there and hang out in, in case, right. you know, in the case of Kaminar, they said Kaminar is out, outside of Federation space. So whose but, space is it in? Do they, is there a species other than the Ba'ul that are claiming that territory? They didn't, they don't really specify. They just say it's outside, quote unquote, of space. Of Federation space. So that's that's my unanswered question. Another one is is the spore drive completely off limits now? Or now that they remove Colbert from the network because he's the quote unquote monster, can they use the drive again? Mm. And you know, we we keep bouncing between this, okay, was it Colbert that was damaging the network? Or is every time that Discovery jumps destroying? Is it both? So Again, they really need to clarify these points. And I mean, yes, they showed how they got to Kaminar was through warp. And by the way, that was a gorgeous shot of placing the camera like directly on the nacelle mm-hmm. during that warp drive. Oh, like, the visuals in this episode are oh, above the approach. The visuals are always freaking amazing. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, but, there are no complaints from me oh, about the no, visuals no. in this episode. I, I would actually like a high-res screenshot of that to use as a background because oh, that was gorgeous. Yeah. So, I mean, they do show them going to warp. It's not like they spore jump to Kaminar. But I would like to say, well, that's it for the spore drive. I just want them to make a freaking distinction. <laughs> I, I but they're not going to because they're going to they're going to say oh oh it's shoot it's an emergency we need to use the sport drive again that that feels just like another another get out of jail free card yeah. in a dramatic situation yeah i i think in this situation it's kind of a thing of we know that a federation ship has been able to get to kaminar on standard warp power before so we know it's not out of range you know we know that you know in the short treks the shinzao did it in the in the official storyline it was a different ship that did it but we still know that a federation ship not equipped with a spore drive was able to get to kaminar we just know that it's outside of federation space which means it's not that doesn't necessarily mean that it's far away it just means that it's in space that's not you know, space is 3D, and sometimes that's hard to imagine, this this 3D kind of sphere of the universe. And Federation space is always shown on a 2D map, which is very hard to reconcile with the fact that space is not two-dimensional. So there are going to be pockets, probably, within this space that are not quote-unquote Federation space, but yet are very easily reachable by warp speed. So I yeah, can give them I'm a pass on more unanswered just in no, the no, no, general. I, yeah, I completely agree with you as far as the fact that they didn't even mention the spore drive. It's like, okay, I can give them a pass on the fact that they didn't use the spore drive to get there because we have proof that other Federation ships have gotten there without the spore drive. So it's not like with Terralisium where it's like, we could never reach there without using the spore drive. This is more of a, oh, okay, well, we'll just, We'll just go there normally. So they're right. not going to use, they don't need special dispensation to go to Kaminar mm-hmm. with the spore drive. But the fact that they haven't mentioned it at all, it's, it is confusing as to, well, does it still work? Are we still able to use that? If we need to, I think that they probably will at least once or twice more before the end of the season. I think we're going to see them require it at some point. Hopefully they're going to give us a good explanation as to why 
it can't work right now. We're still, right. you know, kind of in the middle. Like we thought we had a great explanation. We thought we had a perfect explanation as to why the sport drive was never used. And they're like, Oh no, that wasn't it. And so we're like, right. Oh, come on guys. What, what's up here? <laughs> so, so uh, Mr. Dewey, what are your uh, unanswered questions? Well, one of my things is, is Saru, we, we've talked about this throughout the episode. Is Saru new Saru versus mm-hmm. original recipe Saru? Is Saru going to be a completely different character now that his quote unquote fear is gone? Mm-hmm. Are we going to see this arrogant, basically asshole of a character that we saw in this episode? Or is he going to kind of mellow out? Is he going to kind of reconcile his two sides, his fearful side and his non-fearful side, and come to a a balance where Mm -hmm. he fears normal fearful situations and doesn't fear situations that don't require it? Are are we going to see some sort of balance? Are we going to see some sort of evolution of the character? Or are they just going to continue to make him this oh, well, now I'm a superhero because I have all these extra abilities and no fear. Like, it was cool when he had the extra abilities but was fearful to use them. Right. But now that he doesn't have that fear, it's like, so what are we going to see now? Are we going Mm -hmm. to see him transform? Are they going to explore his personality post this change? Or are they going to just ignore it and we're just going to go back to business as usual after this episode and never touch on this again. I really hope that's not the case. I really hope that we're going to see the evolution of Saru as a character because I love Saru as a character, but the Saru of this episode was not the Saru that I've grown to love over the seasons of Discovery. It's very, very interesting to see what's going on. And then another question I have is, are the Ba'ul going to seek some sort of retribution against either Starfleet or the remaining Kelpians for this disruption of their evolution? The Ba'ul still have this advanced technology. How much of it was destroyed by the Red Angel, we don't fully know, but... We have to imagine that some of it still exists and they do have the ability to recreate it. They, they have the knowledge to do so. So are they going to just eliminate the Kelpians altogether? Are they going to, is there going to be some sort of battle? Is there going to be some sort of war? Are we going to see any of that within the show? Or is it just going to be glossed over and we're just left to wonder why we never hear about Kelpians ever again in the entire series of Star Trek. I hope they give us something, because if they leave it at this and nothing more, I will be very disappointed, because this is too big a storyline to just completely ignore. Right. I But I, I agree. That's my fear. And that is one of the reasons why it got such a low grade for me when we, uh, when we talk about our grade. All right, so actually, Mr. Dewey, won't you give us your score? Well, okay, I'll go ahead and start, though. I rated this, like I said, this is absolutely the, I I don't want to say worst because it makes it sound like it's completely bad, but this is my lowest ranked episode of Star Trek Discovery yet. Okay. Yes, there are worse episodes of Trek in the canon, but that's literally hundreds of episodes to choose from. Mm -hmm. In Discovery... We're, we're not even talking about dozens yet. We don't even have dozens of episodes to choose from. Yet. We have tens of episodes to choose from. This is my least favorite episode of Discovery yet. 
that's not to say it's a bad episode of Trek. I don't want to give the, the wrong impression because there were things about this episode that I enjoyed and I was glad to have it as a new episode. Always glad to have new Trek, but I have to give this probably my lowest rank, hopefully my lowest rank of the season. I gave this a Lieutenant Junior Grade, only one and a half pips on this one. Mm. Uh, Mr. Barry? And that's the same grade that I gave it. I have to agree with Eric that, you know, this isn't the worst episode of Star Trek by any means, but from the level of storytelling and pacing that I've come to expect from Discovery and other great Star Trek shows like Deep Space Nine, who took a whole season-long plot and really paced it out, this episode definitely fell short. And to me, if this episode happened later in the season, I don't think I would have had much of a problem with it at all. Like, if this happens in episode 10 versus 6... Uh, my thoughts could have been completely wrong. It's just the fact that we didn't get to have enough time to explore Saru first dealing with losing his ganglia for maybe doing some soul searching in a couple episodes leading up to this. And especially like you could have kept the scene with Dr. Pollard, like, Hey, I don't know what's going on with the area of your ganglia, but something's happening here. You know, building that up because biological changes like that literally cannot happen overnight. It's just not possible. It just makes it seem too fast. So I would have liked, you know, a couple scenes or a couple episodes leading up to this one to, you know, maybe... Maybe we get little scenes of Saru, like, you know, he keeps grabbing his neck and there's some pain or, mm -hmm. you know, he pokes at, at the spot and like one of these spikes shoots out and he's like, what the hell? Or well, something like that, where you could have definitely paced out the effects of this over a couple episodes. And I don't know if this is the writer's room not communicating and maybe plotting these things out better, but this episode would have got a totally different grade simply from the fact if they moved it further into the season and built up a little bit more points before we got to this point. This could have been a full commander for me just by that fact alone. But because it's literally one episode you know, after the next episode where he, where this, he finds this realization to me, that is, it, it's crap. That That's just crap <laughs> placement. No, it's yeah. bad. It's no, bad storytelling. It, it's, it's bad storytelling and just the buildup. And it further perpetuates that feeling of, oh man, everything's moving so fast. Got happen, got happen, resolution, resolution plot. And yeah, I mean, there could have been more research done. There could have been more Dr. Pollard scenes. You know, they could have tied that more better with Colbert's situation and have the both of them kind of in this realm of, you know, body exploration or they're both going through changes and have a really sympathetic moment between the two characters. And we already see that Saru is an empathetic species and character. I feel that could have tied into the buildup of this episode. Like there's some scenes that they could have kept for early on, like we saw that were like the building blocks. And right. it just really makes the episode feel disjointed because you can see where they can allow this story to breathe room and they're not doing it. And that's my biggest complaint about this episode. All right. 
Yeah, I, I agree. It's they could have spread this out, the story that was in this episode, they could have spread it out over multiple episodes, or they could have waited to tell it a little bit later after building up to it. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah, uh, so my rank's slightly better than what you and, I was going to say, Eric. Uh, better than what <laughs> the Eric's. The two Eric's. We, we agreed the on the rank, score. so go for it. <laughs> so I give it a lieutenant. Two pips. I agree with everything you guys have said. It, it could have been a better episode, but it could have also been a worse episode. So it's that's true. why I, I kind of landed on, on lieutenant. I, it's I won't a very, question you, like, I can see that it would be a very middle-of-the-road type of episode. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm I'm not questioning your judgment on that rank whatsoever. Upon rewatching, I might bump it up a little bit depending on different things I pick up. Like I said, there were things to like about this episode. You know, the mm -hmm. the 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 touch theme, for example, like that was a big one for me. Like just seeing that the way they did that throughout the entire episode was a big big thing for me to be able to see that. But the fact that they just kind of sped things along so quickly to wrap it all up in one episode. It's like, why? Why do that in a series that you don't have to? So that's why it ended up with such a low grade for me, especially for me. I mean, you guys know I've been grading these things higher than both of you throughout right. the season thus far. <laughs> so for me to judge it lower than you means that I was really disappointed in this episode. And while I still enjoy New Trek. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the fact that we're getting New Trek. You know, I think I think we mentioned it before the show, but I don't know if we mentioned it on air. But even just even even being disappointed in this episode, the fact that we got New I'll Trek, I'll still watch it. <laughs> was still yeah, and, and it was still one of the highlights of my week. You know, even Same even an here. episode that I was disappointed in was still the highlight of my week because it was new and it was Trek and it was just. I mean, yes, I expected more because I've built up my expectations of Discovery, but every show is going to have hits and misses. And yeah. unfortunately, I think this, this episode uh, was a bit of a miss for Discovery. It wasn't horrible. There have been worse, but it was a bit of a miss for Discovery in general. Right. So speaking of expectations, mm. let's see what we expect mm. to see next week and beyond. Mr. Barry, would you like to start? Yes. So I think the Red Angel, with the mention of Tachyon's advanced technology and interest in human and Discovery affairs, I really believe that this is someone from the distant future. I think it is an individual and not a species after the revelation of this episode. Discovery was abandoned in the 23rd century and left adrift for a thousand years because of the 33rd century mentioned in the short trek Calypso. I believe that Discovery will be abandoned by either this season's end or the eventual series finale. And that kind of sets in motion maybe some kind of temporal paradox loop. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what I'm predicting. I'm predicting that this creature or person or mechanical being is from that future and has a tie to discovery somehow. And whether that's, well, Aaron, yours kind of melds directly with mine, so go for it. Right, so my prediction, uh, a predestination paradox, 
Discovery somehow creates the right angel they're looking for. So maybe Zora, Discovery's uh, computer from the short trek, Calypso, I think she somehow creates an android body. So I think Zora is going to create an android body. And uh, they find this out, and Pike sets command for Discovery to carry out upon being decommissioned. Like to fly away and go to a certain spot or something? Right. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of leaning that way because it seems like every short track is tying in somehow. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious. I, I think we're going to get a mud episode. So, yeah. Which I would not be opposed to. I love Rain Wilson and I love the version of Harry Mudd that Discovery has brought to life. So I would not be opposed to a mud episode. I'm just saying. Right. Uh, so actually, Mr. Dewey, what is your prediction? Well, for for next episode, first of all, finally, Spock, we finally have a an actual <laughs> next time on Discovery and then Spock. However, I do think that that is probably going to be the ending scene of the episode. That's my that's my prediction is that we're not going to see Spock until the very end of the episode. So it's going to take literally a full half of the season plus before we see adult Spock on Discovery. But from beyond, I completely agree with you guys. With the subtle, quote unquote, passing mentions of tachyons and time incursions and various things that they've pointed out, that this Red Angel is capable of time travel. So this Red Angel, quote unquote, is probably some sort of being from the future. You guys, uh, our th- theories is are are as good as anybody's. I mean, as far as whether it be Discovery's AI, you know, converted into some sort of mechanical suit, or whether it be an individual person. Aaron, you did point out in the notes that the Red Angel does appear to be in a female form. So that could lead us to believe that it's Zora, or it could be any of the females that we've established in this show that haven't appeared in prior shows. Like Michael, for example. We haven't heard or seen of her in any prior show or any former shows after Discovery. So maybe somehow she gets sent to the future in this mechanized suit. You know, so there's there's a lot of possibilities there. But in general, I agree with your theory that it is a future being. And I think that we are dealing with, like you said, some sort of predestination paradox where the discovery is going to essentially create this red angel, red burst situation that it is now following, which is mm-hmm. it is interesting. I uh, I have a love-hate relationship with time travel stories in general. I love time travel stories, but at the same time... Oh, man, sometimes I really, really, really hate them because it depends on how they do them. It depends on how they describe time travel. Like, obviously, as a rational human being, I believe that time travel is ultimately impossible because time is a construct that we create to explain the passage of moments, the the the, the way that we traverse through the days. Basically, time is not a thing which can be traversed like space or distance. Mm-hmm. However, I love time travel stories and uh, a show that I really think did this well, which 
surprised me because it's just a, a kind of cheesy sci-fi type show called Continuum. And I don't know mm. if you guys have heard of that. It's on Netflix. It's available on Netflix all four seasons, although the fourth season was only like six or seven episodes or whatever. It was just basically they were allowed to wrap up their story, which was cool. Mm-hmm. It does feature Rachel Nichols as the 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 main actress who has Trek ties because mm-hmm. she was the Orion. Hot Orion. She was the yeah. amazingly hot Orion in uh, Star Trek 2009. That show really treated time travel very well, I thought. The way they showed uh, very early in the season, actually, that these these time travelers that came back into the past, they killed one of those time travelers' grandparents at one point mm-hmm. in the series. And that person did not cease to exist. So they showed that the very existence of time travel created multiple timelines and therefore, you know, kind of negated the fact that it's like, okay, well, this person didn't exist in this timeline now, but it did exist in the timeline from which you came. And, you know, so there was this whole thing. Yeah. I don't know. Time travel is always an interesting but delicate concept to express in television and movies. And I, I like it. And at sometimes I'm like, oh, God, why did you do that? You know, kind of thing. So I hope that they yep. treat it well. I, f- I feel like that that's where they're going with this, that there is going to be some sort of time travel element involved for sure. Mm-hmm. Just based on the fact that, like, it's, like like we've said, they've mentioned tachyons. They've mentioned time incursions. They've, they've basically laid the groundwork to make sure that we know that this red angel is capable of time travel of some sort. Whether or not it ends up being specifically related to Discovery in the future or whether it be something else. The only thing that leads me against, like, I I really like your theory, actually, that it's Zora. Like, I -hmm. would love that. But I don't see why Zora would seek out Spock. And that's the thing is that the Red Red Angels seem to seek out Spock first before anyone else. So I feel like it has more ties directly to Spock than anyone else. And so I don't think Zora would necessarily have that tie unless it was specifically programmed by Burnham to do what it did. If that's the case, then, you know, everything fits together. But, you know, we'll see. I guess. Yeah, exactly. I guess we will see. Yeah. And I I think that. Uh, is a good place to end the episode. Gentlemen, it was great having you and talking to you both again. Absolutely. Thank you. Mr. Dewey, where would we find you on the internet if we were to look for you? I am at Eric J. Dewey on most online social platforms, including Instagram, Twitter, and Untap. And you can follow the entirety of the Four-Eyed Radio Network for all of our podcasts at the SasquatchNet on Twitter, at Four-Eyed Radio Network on Instagram. Awesome. Mr. Barry. Yes, you can find me at Instagram and Twitter at TrekkieB47. You can find my podcast that's also on the Four-Eyed Radio Network for Power Rangers called Ranger Command Power Hour at Ranger Command PH on Twitter and Ranger Command Power Hour on Facebook and Instagram. And yeah, you can find me at all of those places talking about the things that I love. Very nice. Uh, And you can find me on most social media platforms at Nova Charter. So until next week, guys, live long and prosper. And uh, don't point your ganglia at me. (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) Peace and long life. And watch where their spikes are flying. You know, I was thinking about what the captain told us all about the future. About how we all changed and drifted apart. 
Why would he want to tell us what's to come? Sure goes against everything we've always heard about not polluting the timeline, doesn't it? I believe, however, this situation is unique. Since the anomaly did not occur, there have already been changes in the way this timeline is unfolding. The future we experience will undoubtedly be different from the one the captain encountered. Maybe that's why he told us. Knowing what happens in that future allows us to change things now. So that some things never happen. You have been listening to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four-Eyed Radio Network. You can find us on the web at sfescapepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at sfescapepod. Like us on facebook.com slash sfescapepod.com.